Well, good evening, men. It's great to have another opportunity to study doctrine together. This evening, we are going to look at the topic of divine intercession. As we continue our study of the doctrine of salvation, we come now in this series to the concept of divine intercession, divine intercession. But before we get into it, I want to read a text out of 1 Peter chapter 1, which will again remind us of the tremendous blessing that we have to study such a doctrine as the doctrine of salvation. Peter writes this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, it was revealed to them, and he's speaking of Old Testament prophets, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which have now been announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Well, if angels long to look into this wonderful doctrine of salvation, how much more must we, as those who are the recipients of the gospel, the recipients of this salvation, should long to stretch our minds and to to dig deep into the teachings of Scripture concerning this most precious gift that we have. Well, as I mentioned, our topic for this evening is divine intercession, well, and to, to properly set the context, we need to look back to last week's session, which was on the doctrine of the preservation of the saints, the preservation of the saints. And if you remember, we talked uh, briefly about the canons of Dort, which were put together as a response to the remonstrance. And the canons of Dort, written in the 1600s, state this at one point in their discussion about the preservation of the saints. In Article 8 uh, of this section called Of the Preservation of the Saints, they write this, Thus, it is not in consequence of their own merits or strength, but of God's free mercy, that they, that is believers, do not totally fall from faith and grace, nor continue and perish finally in their backslidings which, with respect to themselves, is not only possible, but would undoubtedly happen, end quote. What the writers of this statement are expressing is the reality that, that describes all true believers, that if it was up to us, if we held salvation in our hands, we would certainly lose it. But as this document goes on to state, salvation isn't in the hands of the believer. Salvation is firmly in the hands of God, who is the one who authors salvation and brings salvation to its intended conclusion. True believers are preserved by God from regeneration all the way to their glorification. And this is accomplished, as we discussed last week, this is accomplished through the use of means. God is a God who uses means, and in the same way that he uses means to bring sinners to salvation, he uses means to bring those who believe to the intended and desired goal of Christ-likeness in glory. And what we're going to look at this evening in our study is that the primary means 
by which God preserves the believer is what we call divine intercession. The intercession more specifically of the son and the spirit, the intercession of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. You see, when we talk about the preservation of the saints or the perseverance of the saints, we cannot discuss that doctrine long without focusing primarily on the use of means, the intercession that is made by Jesus Christ and the intercession that is made by the Holy Spirit on behalf of the believer to carry him all the way from his conversion to glory. Well, at the same time, we must admit that discussions about intercession are usually lacking when we study the doctrine of salvation. The discussions uh, about the intercession of the Spirit and of the Son are often neglected, leading to some pretty serious misunderstandings about the, the nature of the security of a believer's salvation. Because insufficient attention is given to this important aspect of divine intercession, there can be many wrong ideas that end up placing salvation in the hands of the believer rather than the hands of God. But when we recover this important doctrine, this beautiful doctrine of the intercession of the Son and of the Spirit, we can see that indeed preservation is a wonderful promise and possession of every true believer. Speaking of the neglect of this doctrine of intercession, Louis Burkhoff, who has a, a wonderful treatment of this doctrine in his systematic theology, he writes this, quote, compared with the sacrificial work of Christ, that is his atonement, his ministry of intercession receives but little attention. Even in evangelical circles, the impression is often given though perhaps without intending it, that the work accomplished by the Savior on earth was far more important than the services which he now renders in heaven, end quote. Well, we want to do something this evening to correct that ignorance or to correct that, that lack of attention by focusing our time this evening on the doctrine of divine intercession. Well, when we begin, as always, we need to define or to identify and define the key terms and their definitions. Well, first, let's quickly note there are three terms that we want to look at this evening and define them appropriately. The terms are, number one, intercession, intercession, number two, advocate, advocate, and number three, high priestly ministry intercession, advocate, and high priestly ministry. When we talk about the, the ministry of intercession that is, that is accomplished by the Holy Spirit and by the Son of God, we need to look at these three terms, these three concepts, and understand them carefully. So let's begin with the first, the concept of intercession. Intercession. How do we define biblically this term intercession. Well, the key verb that we come across when we study this term intercession is the Greek verb entunkano, entunkano, which means, according to a simple definition of this verb, which means, quote, to make an earnest request 
through contact with the person approached. To make an earnest request through contact with the person approached, end quote. Literally, this verb, it's made up of two components, a preposition and a verb. Tuncano is the verb which basically means to meet. And, and attached to this verb is the preposition in or in the midst of. And so you have this idea of, of this verb being to meet in, to, to meet in the middle, to meet in the sphere of. There's one additional verb that is related to this verb. It's actually based on the same root. It's huper in tenkano, and it's really an intensive form of the same idea. So it's important to note, first of all, that this verb, entuncano, and the related uh, and more intensive form, huper in tenkano, is used to describe the current ministry of the Holy Spirit. So, for example, and, and this is the only time when the Holy Spirit's intercession is explicitly stated, Romans chapter 8, verses 26 to 27, we read these words, in the same way, the Spirit also helps in our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Holy Spirit himself intercedes for us. There we have the the, the occurrence of that intensive form of the verb, huper in tenkano, the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts, and referring to God the Father, he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the spirit is because he, that is the spirit, intercedes. There's our, again, a, a, our key verb, and and. Uh, Tuncano, which is there translated as, as always as intercedes because he, the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So in this text in Romans, we see that the Holy Spirit is described by the use of this verb to refer to his ministry of intercession, to meet within, to meet in, in place of that same term Entuncano is also used just a few verses later in Romans 8 to describe the current ministry of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8 verses 33 and 34 says this, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. There we see the verb once again, entuncano, he intercedes for us. We see this same verb used in one other place in Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25, again describing the current ministry of, the, uh, of Jesus Christ when we read these words. Hebrews 7 verse 25, therefore he is able also, speaking of Jesus Christ, to save forever, that is to save to the utmost, to save to finality, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. There, once again, is that same verb. Our own English 
term, intercede, the the English verb really has the same idea as this Greek word. It comes from the Latin terms inter, which means between, and ketere, which means to go. And so when we talk about the verb to intercede, it really means to intervene, to come between. This is the same idea that's prevalent in in the Greek usage of this term. It means that the one who is the one who comes between two parties, one party in need and the other party, the one of supply, the one party who is at fault and the other party who is the one who has been offended, the one who comes in between, the one who meets between these two parties is said to intercede. He is the intercessor. And as we saw both in Romans 8 and in Hebrews chapter 7, both Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit are described as those who intervene, who come between the Father and the believer. And they are described not as doing this once and for all, not as doing this as a one-time act, but they are described as doing this throughout the duration of the believer's life. A second term that we must look at is the term advocate, the term advocate. And here, this is a term that you undoubtedly have heard of before. It is the term parakletos, parakletos, from which we get the term paraclete. And that term paraclete, or the the term parakletos in the Greek, it's made up of two two, uh, terms as well, a a preposition and a verb, kaleo, to call, and, and para, which means alongside of. And so most simply, the idea of an advocate is one who is called alongside. We could define it this way. An advocate or a paraclete is one who is called to someone's aid one who appears in another's behalf. And once again, when we survey the New Testament, we see that this term, this Greek term parakletos, is used to describe both the ministry of Jesus Christ and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So for example, in John chapter 14, verse 16, we read these very familiar words. Jesus says to his disciples in the upper room that he will ask the Father... And the Father will give you another helper, another paraclete, that he may be with you forever. So this other paraclete, this other helper, first of all, we have to notice this. The term that's used there for another is the Greek term alas, which means another of the same kind. It's not the term heteros, which would mean another of a different kind. No, this helper, this advocate, this paraclete is of the same kind as Jesus. The ministry would be similar. Jesus then is asserting here in this text that he is already a paraclete. He is already an advocate. But his departure, his ascension to heaven would inevitably enable him to request to the Father that the Father send the Spirit to be with Jesus' disciples. 
This term then becomes a, a special designation for the Holy Spirit. We read throughout the, the upper room discourse, the farewell discourse of Jesus in the upper room, John chapter 16, verse 7, for example, where Jesus gives his disciples these words. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, the paraclete, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And you could also trace the same designation for the Holy Spirit, that title as helper, as advocate. We could see that also in John chapter 14, verse 26, and John chapter 15, verse 26. But again, this term paraclete or advocate is not just used to describe the ministry of the Holy Spirit once he comes to indwell the believer. We also see that this term is used specifically to describe even now what Jesus Christ continues to do. So in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, we see that term paraclete or advocate used by the apostle John. He writes this, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate, a paraclete with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And just a few verses before this, he has said in 1 John chapter 1 verse 9, that if we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And, and here in chapter 2 verse 1, John describes how this is possible. It is possible because the paraclete, the advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous, is the one who applies the benefits of his sacrifice, his once for all sacrifice to believers today as they continue to live apart from glorification. I like what Charles Hodge said as he described this concept of the advocate, specifically in reference to Jesus Christ, when he wrote this in his systematic theology. He states, quote, This word is translated advocate in 1 John 2, 1, and comforter in John chapter 14, 16, 15, 26, and 16, verse 7. Neither translation expresses its full meaning. It signifies invoked, called upon for help. The paraclete is therefore, in the comprehensive sense of the word, a helper. Whatever may be the specific nature of the aid afforded. As, however, the guilty, the ignorant, the friendless when arraigned before a tribunal of justice need above all things an advocate one who will undertake their cause, present a plea in their behalf, and use all his influence to secure their acquittal. He goes on to state, it is in this sense especially that Christ is set forth as our parakletos. He is our advocate. He appears at the bar of God for us. He pleads our cause. He presents his work of obedience and suffering as the ground of our justification. He exerts his influence, the influence of his character as the son of God in whom the father is ever well pleased and whom he heareth always as well as the influence due to him in virtue of the covenant of redemption and the perfect fulfillment 
of its conditions to secure for his people all the good they need, end quote. Well, that's the the description of the, the paraclete as it relates to Christ. And we could even take this and adapt this same concept and say this is also what the Holy Spirit as our paraclete is doing. He, upon his merit, makes his case on our behalf. And we, as the needy, weak believers that we are, we receive the benefits of his ministry of advocating on our behalf. Well, there's one more concept that we need to look at as we recognize the key terms and their definitions, and it's the concept of high priestly ministry, high priestly ministry. Well, naturally, the concepts of intercession and advocacy are closely tied to the function of priests, as uh, closely tied to the function of those who serve as mediators between man and God. That's the role of the Old Testament priest. And that's even why God on, on, on Mount Sinai called the nation of Israel to be a kingdom of priests. That is a kingdom of mediators who would stand between the, the, the world and God himself, who would communicate all the revelation about the saving power of God, of the grace of God, the holiness of God. They would communicate that revelation to the people and also represent the nations, the Gentile nations to God. A priest stands as a mediator, as a go-between between man and God and God and man. Thus, it is only natural that one of the offices that we often state as part of the ministry of Jesus Christ, the ministry of the Messiah, is that of the great high priest. Jesus Christ, we know, is that great high priest. Those three offices, of course, that we often recognize in his ministry are the offices of prophet, priest, and king. And it is specifically out of the office of Jesus's high priestly ministry that flows his intercession for his people. The book of Hebrews in particular emphasizes Jesus's role as this great high priest. But as the book of Hebrews does that, it it is emphatic in the great difference that exists between Jesus as the ultimate high priest and all the high priests we know from Old Testament times. Jesus is radically different from the ineffective service and the inefficiency of those Old Testament high priests. Jesus is of a different order. Jesus's ministry as high priest is of a different efficacy. It is of a whole different sphere. And that's why the writer of Hebrews states this, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. Note this and notice how the writer of Hebrews ties Jesus's ministry to inter, uh, of intercession to his high priestly ministry. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. 
For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. You could look through all of the book of Hebrews and you could see this emphasis on the high priestly ministry of Jesus and, and why it is superior to any other perception of priesthood that has existed in the history of redemption. You could look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 to 18. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 5 to 10. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 19 to 20. Chapter 8, verses 1 to 6, and so on and so forth. The writer of Hebrews emphasizes this fact that Jesus is the ultimate high priest that this is the ministry with which he is occupied even today. And it is this ministry which guarantees, which serves as an anchor to the soul. It is this ministry of intercession, which brings the believer to his glorification. John Owen, in describing Christ's high priestly ministry, particularly as revealed in the book of Hebrews, wrote this, Christ's high priestly ministry is, quote, his continual appearance for us in the presence of God by virtue of his office as the high priest over the house of God, representing the efficacy of his oblation, that is his sacrifice, accompanied with tender care, love, and desires for the welfare, supply, deliverance, and salvation of the church, end quote. So with those three concepts in mind, we'll now look at the essential characteristics of a, of a theology of divine intercession. We looked at intercession, we looked at the term advocate, and we also briefly looked at the ministry of Jesus Christ as the great high priest. Well, now let's look at the essential characteristics that define this dual divine intercession. Number one, number one, the ministry of intercession is performed by both the Son and the Spirit. The ministry of intercession is performed by both the Son and the Spirit. Now, we've looked at that already. I've mentioned that already, but it serves us well to go into this a little deeper. Connected to his role as high priest, Jesus intercedes for us, and he does so in heaven. It's important to note that these two members of the triune God, these two persons are both specifically involved in intercession, and yet they do it in different places. Jesus intercedes for us in heaven. Romans 8 verse 34 says, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. Again, it's, it's emphasizing the fact that Jesus, as a high priest, as the ultimate high priest, never had to leave the ultimate holy of holies. He remains there, unlike the high priests of the Old Testament, who entered the holy of holies once a year with trepidation, with a rope 
wrapped around their ankles so that they could be pulled out if they were struck dead. Jesus, who is the sinless sacrifice, the priest who never had to make atonement for his own sin, he is the one, because of his purity, because of his ultimate sacrifice, is the one who remains in the holy of holies, at the right hand of God. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24 communicates this succinctly when we read this, For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Jesus Christ, as he does this ministry of intercession, is doing so even now at the right hand of God in the throne room of heaven. But note this, though that may seem like such a great distance from where you are today, that distance means nothing for the intercession of Christ. I like what Robert Murray McShane said when he wrote this, If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Connected to the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, he intercedes in us. Jesus intercedes at the right hand of the Father in the Holy of Holies, but it is the Holy Spirit who who accomplishes this ministry of intercession within the believer himself. This is implied in Romans chapter 8, verses 26 to 27, when we read this. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. So he is there helping us in the midst of our weakness. And that's communicated by the special verb that's used there for the mundane English verb help. It's, it's actually a very unique verb in the Greek that suggests the idea of the Holy Spirit helping directly in the midst of our weakness. Paul goes on to say, for we do not know how to pray as we should. Or better translated, we do not know what to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. In other words, what happens as the Holy Spirit intercedes for us, he takes over exactly there where we are weak. He, he accomplishes for us what we cannot accomplish for ourselves. And he is interceding even now as Jesus prays in heaven. He intercedes 24-7 from within us in a kind of prayer, in a kind of intercession that is inaudible, that our ears do not hear. And even though we may be completely oblivious to that ministry that is being done to us and for us, the Holy Spirit is interceding for us nonstop in distinguishing or or describing the difference between these two advocates, the distinction between these two ministries of intercession, Burkhoff says this, Christ pleads our cause with God, while the Holy Spirit pleads God's cause with us. Number two, a second essential essential characteristic is this, the ministry of intercession guarantees our access to the Father. 
as believers, as those who have been called by by the Holy Spirit, regenerated, given new life, we have guaranteed access to the Father. But it's important to note, it's important to remember our status. Who are we? Scripture defines us as spiritually weak. Romans chapter 8 verse 26 said that. We are weak. Scripture describes us as in constant need of cleansing. 1 John 1 verse 9 and 1 John 2 verse 1. And Scripture also describes us as being hunted by a powerful enemy. 1 Peter 5 verse 8 says the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And in Revelation 12 verse 10, Satan is described as the great accuser who accuses us before God day and night. You see, if left to ourselves, our prayers would fail. We would fall and our accuser would triumph. But it is precisely here, it is precisely for this reason that the Son and the Spirit are continually occupied with this ministry of intercession to ensure that we, we who have come to know Christ, who have been given new life, to ensure that we are never left to ourselves, to ensure that salvation is never left in our hands and to give us constant access to the father to receive the necessary grace and mercy for all the needs that we have in this life, whether it is the need for cleansing, whether it is the need for strength in the midst of weakness, whether it is in the need of defense from the accusations of the evil one. Again, Romans chapter 8, verse 26, describes us as being weak. Paul says in the same way, the spirit also helps our weakness. Notice he doesn't say weaknesses to point to specific weaknesses that one believer or another believer may have. He uses the singular, the general term to describe our overall condition. And Paul says, I'm in the same boat. The spirit helps our weakness. Even as saints, we have weakness. We continue to be marked by sin. We continue to be marked by suffering and we continue to be marked by ignorance. When we do not know what to pray, the spirit himself prays that prayer. Douglas Moo writes this, when we do not know what to pray for, Yes, even when we pray for things that are not best for us, we need not despair, for we can depend on the Spirit's ministry of perfect intercession on our behalf. What a precious promise. John Calvin said it this way, speaking of this text in Romans chapter 8, except that we are supported by God's hands, We are soon overwhelmed by innumerable evils. Though we are in every respect weak and various affirmities threaten our fall, there is yet sufficient protection in God's spirit to preserve us from falling and to keep us from being overwhelmed by any mass of evils. Well, that's what the Spirit does. The Spirit prays the prayers that we cannot. The Son also 
prays the prayer that we cannot. He guarantees that access to the throne room of God. He, as the perfect great high priest, he leads us into the throne room exactly there where we have the need. Again, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 to 16 says that we are to draw near with confidence. We are to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace in the time of need. We come to the throne of grace not out of merit. We come to the throne of grace not to receive the reward. We come to the throne of grace specifically because we are weak, specifically because we need cleansing, specifically because our enemy makes accusations against us. And it is Jesus Christ who guarantees that access to find exactly what we need through this ministry of intercession. He makes sure, he ensures that the the, the doors to the throne room of the Holy of Holies for us is always open. Again, Louis Burkhoff says this, when we address the Father in his, that is Jesus' name, he sanctifies our prayers. They need this because they are so often imperfect, trivial, superficial, and even insincere. While they are addressed to the one who is perfect in holiness and majesty. And besides rendering our prayers acceptable, he, that is Jesus, also sanctifies our services in the kingdom of God. This is also necessary because we are often conscious of the fact that they do not spring from the purest motives. And that even when they do, they are far from that perfection that would make them in themselves acceptable to a holy God. The blight of sin rests upon them all. In the words of Thomas Watson, prayer as it comes from the saint is weak and languid. But when the arrow of a saint's prayer is put into the bow of Christ's intercession, it pierces the throne of grace. Number three, the ministry of intercession is according to the will of the Father and not contrary to it. The ministry of intercession is according to the will of the Father and not contrary to it. The Son and the Spirit intercede for us as believers, not in order to propitiate or placate the wrath of the Father. Christ already did that on the cross. He made the once for all payment for sin and said, it is finished. This ministry of intercession need not imply the imminence of wrath, that wrath is about to be poured out on believers and it is the spirit and it is Christ who begged the father to withhold. That is a misunderstanding of this precious ministry of intercession. Rather, when we talk about intercession, it is not against the will of the Father, but it is in complete agreement with it. The need for intercession implies the existence of need on our part and the presence of resources on the Father's. 
God's wrath has been fully satisfied. Even look back at Romans chapter 8, that chapter which contains references both to the ministry of the Spirit and the ministry of the Son in their intercession. Romans 8 verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And even in that text that refers to the intercessory ministry of the Son, Romans 8, verses 31 to 34, Paul makes it abundantly clear that there is no more condemnation, there is no more judgment that rests upon any believer. What then shall we say to these things, Paul writes? If God is for us, speaking of the Father, Who is against us? Paul is here asserting that the father is for us. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. You see, when we talk about intercession, we must never think of it in, 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 as needed because the Father still holds on to wrath in, in response to us. That is unbiblical. Paul completely destroys that concept. There is no condemnation. The ministry of intercession is needed not because of wrath, but because of need and supply. We are needy and the Father has the supply and it is the Son and the Spirit who act as intermediaries, who come between us between the believer and the father and ensure that the believer receives every supply needed for his situation. And it's also important to note when we think of that, that successful prayer means asking according to God's will. We know that for ourselves. We are commanded by the apostle John in first John five verses 14 to 15 that this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, the father's will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. So John states that if you ask according to the will of God, your prayer will be answered. Well, that same reality applies to the intercession of the Son and the Spirit. Both of them intercede precisely according to the will of the Father. There is complete and perfect unity between the Father, Spirit, and Son in all these requests that are made on our behalf. Romans 8.27 specifically states that the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God, or very literally translated there, according to God. He intercedes for us according to God, which indicates that all of his requests on our behalf in light of the believer's weakness are exactly according to what the Father wills to supply. Number four, our fourth essential characteristic. The ministry of intercession is focused on each and every believer. This is not just 
a ministry that a few in the church possess. This is not just for certain individuals. This is for each and every believer. You see, even before Jesus accomplished his atonement on the cross, he interceded for all believers. He prayed for you in the garden. John 17, verse 9, in that great high priestly prayer of Jesus, Jesus says this to the Father, I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. You go back to John chapter 6 and the reference to those whom the Father has given to the Son refer to all of the elect. And Jesus prays for all of them, for each and every believer. He prays even before his intercession on their behalf. A, a few verses later in John 17, verse 20, we read this. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, speaking of the 11 disciples, but for those also who believe in me through their word. In other words, Jesus prays there in the garden, not just for his 11 disciples whom he would send out as his apostles, but he prays for everyone who would come to believe in Jesus as a result of the apostles' ministry. He prays for them. In response to this text, Thomas Watson stated, many shepherds scarcely pray for themselves. Christ prays for all his elect sheep. As Christ knows every sheep by name, so Christ prays for every sheep by name. And what does Christ pray for them? Why, he prays that they may not wander, that they may not tire or faint, that they may not die along the way. And this is Christ's prayer for his sheep. John 17, 11, Holy Father, keep those whom you have given me. It's interesting to note that whenever the New Testament writers whether it's Paul or the writer of Hebrews, refers to the ministry of intercession. They always make it clear it is for all believers. Romans 8 verse 27, the Holy Spirit intercedes for the saints, all of them. Romans 8 verse 34, Christ intercedes for us. Hebrews 7 verse 25, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. You see, anyone who draws near to God through Jesus Christ, who believes in Jesus in response to the good news proclaimed by the apostles, is an object of the Son's and the Spirit's ministry of intercession. Each and every true believer is a recipient. There are no distinctions. There are not some haves and some have-nots. If you are in Christ, if you have been made alive by his spirit, you can count on this as a promise. This is something, this is a hill you would die on. Jesus Christ intercedes for you Personally, the Holy Spirit intercedes for you personally. Number five, the ministry of intercession continuously applies the benefits of Christ's sacrifice. 
The ministry of intercession continuously applies the benefits of Christ's sacrifice. You see, as the ultimate sacrifice, Christ offered himself once for all. The payment for sin was brought to completion. Now as the ultimate priest, Christ has entered the presence of God once for all to apply the finished work of his sacrifice continuously to all believers. This is so important to note because so often believers think that they receive the benefits of Christ's atonement solely at the moment of their conversion. But as we look at this ministry of intercession, specifically as, as, as performed by the great high priest, Jesus, we see that we continue each and every day to live our lives in Christ as beneficiaries of the atonement. In fact, there is an interesting connection to make between the objects of Christ's atonement and the objects of Christ's intercession. You see, Christ prayed for those whom the Father had given him, John 17, verse 9. Christ laid down his life as a sacrifice specifically for his sheep, John 10. Christ now lives to make intercession for them, Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 to 28. And Christ will save them Completely, Hebrews 7, verse 25. You see, here's the equation. Those whom God gave to his son, Jesus, are those for whom Jesus died. And those for whom Jesus died are those for whom Jesus now intercedes. And those for whom Jesus now intercedes are those whom Jesus will glorify. As I said, we have this idea that the application of the benefits of Christ's atonement may have some kind of, of, of unique or full application only at that moment of conversion. But in reality, his intercession is what sustains the effects of his atonement. All that he died for is applied to us through this ministry of intercession. Nothing falls through the cracks because he not only offered himself as the perfect sacrifice, but he now ever lives to apply the results of that sacrifice. Number six, the ministry of intercession is based on the merits of the intercessors, not of the believer. The ministry of intercession is based on the merits of the intercessors and not of the believer. And we can be thankful for that. So thankful. Yes, indeed, we must heed the exhortations to draw near. We must take advantage to the fact that the throne room of God has been opened and we are led into his presence by Jesus Christ, our great high priest. But the success of the intercession of the Son and the Spirit, the success of their ministry that they do even now for us this very moment, that success is not dependent upon our spiritual achievements. We do not know what to pray for, but the Spirit does. And that which, in which we are weak is that in which he is strong and he intercedes precisely there because of his merit. 
his omniscience, his indwelling, his faithfulness. And the father bases the answer to prayer on the merits of the spirit. And what should we say about the loving intercession of the son? Again, when we read Romans chapter 8, especially the end of that chapter, we, we see that the merits of Christ are so powerful that nothing can separate us from the effects of his atonement. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, including you as a believer, will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This text covers the spectrum. It covers the spectrum and it it ensures to us that the success of this intercession is never based upon our merit. It is based upon the merit of God's son. Burkhoff says this, It is a consoling thought that Christ is praying for us even when we are negligent in our prayer life. That he is presenting to the Father those spiritual needs which were not present in our minds and which we often neglect to include in our prayers. And that he prays for our protection against the dangers of which we are not even conscious and against the enemies which threaten us, though we do not even notice it. He is praying that our faith may not cease and that we may come out victoriously in the end. Thomas Brooks echoes this when he says, quote, God's hearing of our prayers doth not depend upon sanctification, but upon Christ's intercession, not upon what we are in ourselves, but what we are in the Lord Jesus. Both our persons and our prayers are acceptable in the beloved, end quote. Number seven, our seventh essential quality or characteristic of the ministry of intercession is this. The ministry of intercession will never fail. The ministry of intercession will never fa- fail. The believer is totally covered and held secure by a power and a determination that can never fail. The Son intercedes in heaven. The Spirit intercedes in us. They do, do so in complete harmony with the Father who always grants their, their petitions. A good example of the unfailing nature of their petitions is found in Luke chapter 22 verses 31 to 32, where we record this or where where we read this interaction between Jesus and Simon, Simon Peter, Luke 22 verses 31 to 32, Jesus states, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when you have once again turned, strengthen your brothers. Strengthen your brothers. Indeed, Peter did stumble. He was sifted like wheat by Satan. But because Jesus Christ prayed, Peter's faith, which should have failed, never failed. And because Christ 
prayed, Peter turned again and strengthened his brothers. Isn't that a wonderful reality? This example of, of Peter, who who's in so many ways describes us, so prone to failure, so prone to, 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 to weakness. Peter is prayed for by Jesus, and it is for that reason that Peter's faith does not fail. Anthony Hokema says this, here then we have an example of a believer who fell deeply into sin and yet whose faith was not eclipsed because of Jesus's intercession. Believing as we do that our Lord intercedes for all who are his own, should we not also trust that Christ will not permit the faith of any of his people to fail, though they should fall into grievous sin. End quote. You know, the fact that you believe today is not a testimony to your determination, to the strength of your spiritual prowess. The fact that you believe today, however many months or years after your conversion, is a testimony to the intercession of the Spirit and of the Son. Another writer, William Symington, in a a very interesting and profound book called On the Atonement and Intercession of Christ, writes these words, quote, Believers' security springs not from anything naturally indestructible in the principle of the new life of which they are possessed, nor from any want or absence of criminality in the sins they commit, nor from anything less dangerous in the circumstances in which they are placed, but wholly from the intercession of Christ The principle of the new life may in itself be liable to decay, but Christ, by his intercession, will uphold it. Their sins may deserve condemnation, but he intercedes for pardon. They may be openly exposed to danger, but his intercession interposes a shield of infallible protection. Not a sin can they commit for which his merits cannot secure forgiveness. Not an accusation can be charged upon them which he has not skill to answer. Not a temptation can assail them which he has not power to repel. Not a service can they perform, however imperfect, to which he cannot give acceptance in the sight of God. Their final salvation, he says, is thus rendered absolutely secure and in a spirit, not of haughty self-confidence, but of humble dependence on the advocate with the father. May they bid defiance to all opposition and calmly trust that the gates of hell shall not prevail against them. End quote. Well, as we wrap up, our time this evening, I want to look at a few practical implications. I'll go over these very quickly and encourage you to spend time thinking through these, uh, these implications, these applications in much greater thought. Notice this as we wrap this up and respond to this wonderful doctrine. 
Number one, the love of Christ and the love of the Holy Spirit is no theoretical idea. It is not merely legal in nature. No, their love for you as a believer is personal and tender. Number two, your prayers, friend, your prayers do not need to be perfect. You do not need to worry about whether your prayers will be efficacious if you don't say the right words or have the right, right order or have the precise posture or use the right phraseology. No, the prayers of Christ and the prayers of the Spirit are perfect. And you can rest and that those prayers are enough. Number three, there is always hope for the believer in the worst moments of guilt. There is always hope. You have two advocates who faithfully attend to your case. And if you have believed in the gospel, even though you might have stumbled in an egregious sin, you must recognize your advocates are there precisely for your need. Number four, you still need the achievements of the cross. You still need the achievements of the cross, but rest assured, even now, they are being applied to your specific need. I don't know where you're at. I don't know what challenges you face. I don't know what struggles you have, but the spirit and the son are applying the benefits of his redemption to you right now. And that is a guarantee that will last you for the rest of your life whether you recognize it or not, whether you're sleeping or awake, whether you're lethargic or energetic, they are applying the achievements of the cross to you right now. You need that. Number five, the triune God is far more committed to your preservation than you are. Think of this wonderful doctrine. Think of these two advocates how they testify to the, the commitment of our triune God to get us through to the end. Indeed, our God is far more committed to our salvation than we ever can or will be. And as I close, I want to read the words of John Calvin, which are both an invitation and a warning. In response to the prayer of Jesus in John 17, he writes this, This prayer of Christ is a safe harbor, and whoever retreats into it is safe from all shipwreck, for it is as if Christ had solemnly sworn that he will devote his care and diligence to our salvation, end quote. But what does that mean? That means if you have not retreated to Christ, if you have not clung to him as your only hope. There is right now no one interceding for you. This ministry of intercession does not apply to you. These guarantees, these promises, this tender and personal love is not yours, but it can be. If you would believe the message 
that Jesus entrusted to his apostles the gospel, the good news, means that this security, this ministry can be yours. In closing, let me read from the hymn of Charity Lee's Bancroft before the throne of God above. And this will be our closing prayer. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven in his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness. The great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. Amen.